Hello, this is Nikki Tuyamasito, the Executive Director of Christians for Social Action, and your host for this episode of 20 Minute Takes. On this episode, we talk with Robert Chavomero and Jeff Leo. Robert is an associate professor at UCLA, the Department of Chicana, Chicana, Central American, and Asian American Studies. And Jeff is the National Director of Theological Formation for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We talk to them about their book, Christianity and Critical Race Theory. Join us for this episode. Jeff and Robert, I am so glad that you have joined us here on 20 Minute Takes. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. You know, um, you two are my go-to people when there's something super complicated happening in like the racial justice space or critical race theory and that sort of a thing. And I mean, to be honest, I feel like um, your book, Christianity and Critical Race Theory, has two really scary concepts in the title. Christianity and critical race theory. And uh, those things can kind of be seen as sort of political lightning rods. But I know you all to be, in addition to being super smart, lovely and kind and delightful people um, and not scary at all. Uh, how would your friends describe you um, when you're not talking about academic y things? The people who know you best, how do they describe you, Jeff? That's a great question. I think, well, what I would hope folks would say is that um, I'm a pastor um, and that I uh, have a, have the heart of a pastor. Uh-huh. I, I think they would say that I'm nerdy and I can be very serious, so nerdy uh-huh. and serious. But, you know, I, I'm a creative and uh, I like to make things like woodworking. Um, and so I hope people experience the creative and light side as much as they do the serious ministerial, um, very, very serious liberationist pastoral side. Oh, fantastic. And how about you, Robert? How would, how do your friends describe describe you? I think it depends. My friends or my kids. <laughs> <Depends>. <laughs> Most people know me as like pretty serious like, uh-huh. and probably nice. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, that kind of thing. My kids, I'm just like a dorky dad with them and really bad dad jokes and stuff like that. Um, and ho- hopefully they'd all say that I care. That's cool. That's great. Um I live in one of the areas where critical race theory and whether or not it should be taught in schools is a huge debate. I live in Virginia. and um, But can you tell me, uh, Jeff, maybe you can start us off, but we'd love to hear from both of you. What is critical race theory in a couple of sentences and maybe a little bit of what is it not? Well, let me start with what it's not, because it's not being taught in schools. Um, <laughs> I, I think there are ways of thinking about this label critical race theory that uh-huh. people think is being taught in schools but at the at the very heart of it it is an academic legal scholarly movement that's looking at race in the law and in okay. some of the foundational documents that uh-huh. created our country so that level of analysis simply isn't happening at the public school level <laughs> It, uh-huh. it just isn't because when you read the original stuff, you're not going to find any of that material in K through 12. Okay. So it's law school framework, yeah, law school analysis. Graduate level and beyond, you know, analysis of the legal system. Cool. How would you describe what critical race theory is? Sure. Yeah. So it takes a look at, for example, um, 
Brown versus the board. <clears throat> Landmark civil rights case in which um, segregation in public school is undone, legally speaking. But then it says, even though we won that case in the civil rights movement, we still have measurable segregation in the public school system. Hmm. And critical race theory asks, why is it that in the legal system, it says this, but in reality, we have this? So it's a critical inquiry. It's asking questions about the adequacies and inadequacies and the machinery that's created by the law. Oh, interesting. So, so even though the law might say one thing, but the sort of the lived out reality might be different. And that's where critical race theory sort of exists in questions. And Absolutely. I know, um, Robert, that this is your academic field of expertise. How, how do you describe critical race theory uh, to folks not in your classroom? The only thing I would add to, to Jeff is that like CRT has expanded from its founding within law and then it's expanded to, to fields like education, for example, which is where I encounter it a lot, right? Look, and looking at the impact of, of historic racial segregation or contemporary um, de facto segregation in the schools and how race plays out in the schools. Um, and so it, it sort of has, has spread out in that sense. Um, CRT has been uh, reframed as kind of like a boogeyman to capture anything that has to do with justice and U.S. history. Okay. And so that's why I think it's confusing because most people, when they talk about CRT, they're talking about anything quote-unquote liberal or having to do with race and that CRT, even though CRT proper, yeah, again, I I can barely teach it to undergrads, let alone (laughs) is it taught in K-12 schools in the formal sense. That I mean, that's fascinating to to sort of hear like, oh, actually, it's this really high level legal uh, framework. Um, Robert, one of the things uh, that you wrote about was your experience um, as a Latino who was being recruited into a higher education leadership spot. And I thought it was sort of an interesting story because you mentioned some of the different red flags that were raised for you. Um, Can you walk us through that just a bit? And, And what are some of the red flags that you notice uh, that are pointing to some underlying troublesome assumptions about race. Sure. Yeah. So I, I was recruited to like a, a executive level kind of like diversity position at a Christian university. Mm-hmm. And, like, and like all my friends warned me like, don't do it, Robert. It's crazy there. It's the lion's <laughs> den. I'm like, oh, but they're so nice to me right now. Right. <laughs> and so as I interviewed for the position, there were different red flags, different things I experienced. So one of them was, I was speaking with a high-level administrator who would make the decision about the job. Mm. And I said, you know, like, you know, I said, you know, it's interesting because the student population at this Christian university, it's it's increasingly diverse, but there's not that many diverse faculty. Right? Mm. And I said, you know, I'd love to bring my experiences at UCLA, working with, you know, the promotion of faculty diversity to this campus. Mm-hmm. Um, things like the Ford Foundation and things like that, that I've been a part of. And in response, the faculty member said, I believe that as the student population naturally becomes more diverse, the faculty will naturally become more diverse. Mm, okay. And, and I remember hearing that and like, that is just factually not true, social scientifically not true. One um, administrator at the law school at UCLA said, you know, even though UCLA has certain diversity faculty types of 
of programs involved, at this rate, it would take like 230 years to reach racial equity. Right? Oh, wow. And so I, I just I just knew that when that administrator said that, yes. it was riddled with false assumptions, right? Um, another thing was uh, an experience where I learned that this university had gone through a diversity audit by, okay. ironically, UCLA. Uh-huh. So your institution. My institution. But they didn't allow anybody, faculty, staff, anybody publicly to see the results. Uh-huh. <laughs> a third thing, basically, there is um, warning signs when people avoid um, remedial measures to to solve, you know, to, to improve on our issues of racial equity mm. and, and, and warning signs, warning signs when people hide from the issue. Mm. So what were some of the, you mentioned these red flags and it pointed you to assumptions that are potentially dangerous. Can you name some of those common assumptions, whether it was in that particular situation or, or Jeff, even as you're hearing the story retold, what are some of these assumptions that we may not actually realize that we're allowing to live in our communities um, that are actually uh, a little bit dangerous. Jeff, did you have some thoughts? Sure. I can think of a Supreme Court case where one of the justices is reasoning about a particular municipality, the the city of Pasadena, in fact, Uh near which I live. And um, in the reasoning, the common sense, what we call in the book, the common sense, is Uh that there are these natural uh, flows of populations, kind of like what um, Robert is talking about, that if the student body diversifies, that the faculty will diversify. Well, yes. this justice was reasoning, well, as the city uh, demographics change as a quote-unquote natural uh-huh. kind of migration pattern, yeah. Um, so there's an assumption that there's not something more problematic or perhaps even insidious at work, right? That these are impersonal factors, that the economy is an impersonal economy, and that consumers and human beings are rational creatures, and that there's not something implicit going on or something beneath the surface, like, for example, racial bias. But in fact, what critical race theory will assert is that these kinds of biases are quite normal, in fact, ordinary. Oh, interesting. So that um, it sort of presumes an equality or neutrality to different things. And what we're seeing is sometimes baked into these systems are, I'm going to use the word natural prejudices or natural obstacles um, that might be along the lines of race or other factors, and that we need to pay attention. I guess in in our circle, we would call it kind of systemic injustice or the ways the systems are built to perpetuate certain privileges, but maybe to create obstacles for others. Is that? Yes, that's a great way of putting it. And I think what Uh, folks like Robert and I would prescribe is a kind of intentional race consciousness as opposed to an intentional race blindness in the ways that we do uh, jurisprudence and also ministry, theology, church leadership, etc. Ah, super interesting. Because I do think, I do hear this tossed around this race blindness as like the ideal, right? The thing that we're striving towards. Um, You know, one of the things I appreciate about your book is that there is a flow to um, kind of the de- general rise and fall of, of, a, of a Christian framework that to me is very familiar, this sort of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, you know, kind of this, the story of the gospel, the story of God, um, I think can be understood through these different flows. 
And um, I notice that you all point to some of the places where there is resonance with the intention of CRT, but I also know you all are really, really thoughtful and that each of those words was chosen because I know we're not supposed to look at the Bible, like, you know, the lens of CRT, we, you know, we don't, which thing we use to validate the other. Can you tell us about what's the right relationship between the gospel and CRT and us as Jesus followers? The Bible presents this beautiful picture in Revelation 21, 26, where John is describing the beloved community of all, right? When Jesus comes back and makes all things new, part of that that final redemption of all things mm-hmm. is that we will each bring our our cultural treasure and wealth mm-hmm. before Jesus. That um, John calls that the glory and honor of the nations. So that passage says that the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into the New Jerusalem. Uh, the doxa, the cultural, like the treasure and wealth, the cultural treasure and wealth of the different ethnic groups of the world, right? So there's this inherent value, importance to our ethnic um, cultures, cultures that God has given us, right? That is supposed to be for the benefit of the body of Christ, for the mm-hmm. benefit of the world and society. Um, and CRT is really trying to affirm that, like there's something special, there's something beautiful, there's something important and glorious about our different ethnic and cultural backgrounds. Right? Um, and there's an assumption oftentimes in Christian circles that, well, let's just be colorblind, right? Right, right. And I think there's one aspect of colorblindness that is positive, right? The aspect of, uh, like Paul in, in, in Galatians, that before Christ there's no favoritism, right? There's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free, in the sense of favoritism. But it doesn't mean that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, in God's larger, you know. Um, mm, we're not a neutral know, blob. Uh, we're not a neutral <laughs> blob, right? Yeah. yeah. And 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 so I think God intended our, our cultural treasure to be a gift. And mm. what's happened though? What race does? Race says, oh, only one people, one group of people have cultural treasure and wealth, glory and honor. And we'll create a legal category and we'll call them white people right? or we'll call them Spanish people. And and in reality, they only have glory and honor. And everybody else, if they really want to have glory and honor, they have to become like the privileged group, right? And I think that that's the intersection. And CRT is, does a great job of understanding how that came to be. Mm. So it it helps. It's another way of looking at this inherent well, uh, this inherent worth or contribution of all of these different communities, and in a sense, maybe elevating where those have been suppressed. Um, in the example that you laid out, I think it happens, perhaps intentionally and also sometimes accidentally, that a particular community is held up as the privileged one. What are some of the things that we can? look at or, or pay attention to that sort of say, hey, actually, we are starting to suppress the treasure that God has given to one community, and we have accidentally elevated or made worth more than it actually is this other. Is there ways that you see that playing out in your churches or the communities where you are? I would say so, um, and I'll, I'll take a crack at it. Um, primarily, uh, in history and in my pastoral experience as well, um, it's when people say something that their perspectives aren't being listened to, 
And uh, I'm not talking about someone who walks into a church for the first time, says we should do things this way and nobody listens to them. I'm talking about people who really are doing their due diligence to try and make a, a serious church home somewhere and who are not heard. In fact, if you read in, t- in like not even in between the lines, in the words of the introductory chapter and even the, the conclusion of our book, we're writing directly to the hearts of our dear um, church friends who have felt that kind of marginalizing experience uh, for themselves. So they have been saying something. Um, but your question is, how do we know? Uh, if we don't have ears to hear, we won't know. And that's one of the big dangers. So by saying something, by putting a book out like this, we're calling to folks who have ears to hear. And we know that's not everyone. But I personally believe that um, there are folks who are listening even right now who would be willing to bend the ear, perhaps prophetically, perhaps relationally, um, in order to gain a hearing for the kinds of cries and complaints that our beloved young adults and church members who have left their spaces because of great pain um, are uttering um, because of their exclusion. So the first thing I'd say is people are saying something. They're saying something now. In fact, I think it couldn't be much louder than than it is right now. I've never heard it more loudly than I have now. Um, and for folks to not hear it now means that there's something closed off. Wow. What do we understand about redemption? Can you say say more about what redemption looks like? So we've mentioned Revelation 21, 26, the glory and honor of the nations. Revelation 27 says, it follows up by saying that nothing impure will survive for eternity. Nothing that causes impurity, right? Um, so every ethnic group of the world, again, in my kind of interpretation of this, possesses cultural treasure and wealth. But verse 27 also contains elements of culture and ethnicity that are impure, right? Um, so, for example, like Latino culture, you know, there's much glory and honor about it. Uh, we could talk about, but there's also machismo. That's not going to make it in, right? Um, U.S. culture has a lot, has lots of glory and honor, right? That's why we're, that's why my families are here, right? Um, we could go back to Mexico and China, China respectively, if we wanted to, and, and you know, there's, we still recognize the glory and honor of those places, but we're here for a reason, right? But white nationalism is not going to make it in, right? Um, and patriarchy is not going to make it in, and, and materialism and greed, those are sinful aspects of, of, of U.S. society, right? Um, and so I think that we, we get to the redemption part by viewing our cultures through the lens of, of God's Word, thoughtfully, prayerfully humbly, right? Um, not weaponizing it, of course. I know that can be triggering to, triggering to a lot of people. Um, and then we try to reform our institutions, our families, our societies, our societies in a way that reflects God's biblical intent. I, I think you, you all have helped us, um, I think, not be unnecessarily scared by critical race theory, uh, sort of by naming what it is, um, naming some places of overlap where it helps us unpack and understand uh, some biblical concepts or theological concepts. Um, and at the same time, it's also a secular, a secular analysis. Can you tell us just a bit about some of the shortcomings of CRT? 
Yeah, I want to be respectful to our CRT colleagues. I, I think um, shortcomings may be strong, but there are some dissonances between the Christian tradition, Christian theology, and um, a, a framework like CRT. So, in the first instance, the view of what is true is quite different. So, there are some critical race theorists for whom truth is simply a human construct used to um, subordinate others. While for Christians in our tradition, um, we proclaim that the Bible is true and that it's the story of God's love for us. So, truth itself is a person, Jesus Christ, who um, loves us and we love Jesus back. That's a very different accounting of truth. But the second thing that I've written about in one of the chapters is the um, very different outlook on life that CRT and the Christian tradition have. So, there's one author, um, Derek Bell, who writes about um, what he refers to as the, quote, permanent subordinate status of people of color in the United States. Hmm. Permanent subordinate status. Oh, that's depressing. (laughs) It it does seem depressing for a lot of folks. He, He refers to this as a kind of racial realism, right? So, some of your listeners will hear echoes of Reinhold Niebuhr, but um, the the realism is the sense that we don't want to believe in the false, or we don't want to believe in the myth of a gradually approaching equality, that one day the arc of justice will land us in equality, and it's just, we just got to hold out. Um, What Bell says is we need to actively disbelieve that myth, and that will help us fight for justice, stand up straighter, etc., to claim the dignity that we have. And I I value that, but the Christian tradition says something slightly different, that Jesus is returning and will ultimately vindicate God and God's people and rescue us from the kinds of subordination that we experience. So, for example, in the book of Revelation that Robert keeps mentioning, there's no mention of the people of God taking up arms to accomplish their own purposes, rather to rely on the vindication of God at the end of time. And that's just a different outlook, which calls for a different ethics. So, there are two, at least those two dissonances that I would list. Uh, thanks for calling that out. That's helpful for us to know which things we can jump in with enthusiasm. And then also, it's like, oh, coming from a totally different, starting in any place, there are, there are distinctions. I might add just one thing. I, I want to make it clear to your hearers that um, Robert and I, our goal isn't to make CRT a household name. Mm-hmm. Our goal isn't to get CRT in the public schools. I don't think it has a place there. Our goal is that um, people of goodwill would learn how to engage ideas like CRT faithfully, um, but even more so that the pain that the church has caused because of its inability to engage issues like this, its fear and suspicion, which takes forms of exclusion and has deeply impacted the people that we care for, people of color who are leaving certain church spaces. Um, we care for those folks, and we want to make sure it's clear that um, it's for, for them that we work and, and for them that we write. It's beautiful. Robert, did you want to add anything? Sure. Like. I want people to know Jesus. <laughs> uh, you know, my heart, I, I'm, I'm a hood Pentecostal pastor, right? And I think that um, my life is transformed by Jesus. And I get really upset when a stumbling block is placed in people's way to come to know uh-huh. Jesus. Yes. And the anti-CRT movement in all of its ignorance is really a stumbling block. Because at the end of the day, by saying it directly and indirectly, it's saying, 
you can't care about issues of justice and race and be a Christian. And, you know, you kind of have to be like an American white nationalist. That's really what it's saying without saying it directly all the time, but a lot of times directly saying it. And that's just not true. So, so there's thousands, there's millions of young people who care about issues of justice and see the important value of CRT as an analytical tool. But if you tell them that that's all wrong, then, then you're just reinforcing American civil religion. And so that's why really, this is why I pour my heart and soul into this book with Jeff, because I want people to be able to see that, that race and justice issues are completely perfectly resonant with, with Jesus. In fact, I mean, Jesus and the biblical message um, invented racial justice long before <laughs> CRT was ever coined as a phrase, you know, 40 years ago. Well, thank you so much. I think um, your book helps us to recognize the ways that we accidentally reduce the gospel to a very interpersonal one and, and, and helps us see some of the things that are, I think, heart and soul of the gospel of kind of both um, personal transformation as well as systemic and community transformation. Um, so thank you so much for uh, your labor of love and, and helping us along as we try to navigate uh, these different uh, lightning rod topics. Um, but thanks so much for joining us here. We're so grateful you took the time. Great conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Nikki. Twenty Minute Takes is a production of Christians for Social Action. We're produced and edited by David DeLeon. I'm your host, Nikki Toyamasito, and the music is done by Andre Henry. You can find us on the web at ChristiansforSocialAction.org. Give us five stars, write a review, and share about the podcast with your friends.